Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. he does, I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For, us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Please join me in welcoming Leon to the stage. Thank you. Well, thank you. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, I should say, just before I start, um, last Sunday, I entirely lost my voice and couldn't really speak for a couple of days. Uh, Sadly for you, it's back. Um, But uh, the result is I'm struggling to breathe a little bit and coughing a bit. So if I stop breathing or just cough my way through the talk, um, I I think I'll be okay. I mean, if I stop breathing, do feel free to intervene. Uh, But if it's just a casual wheeze or a cough, uh, forgive me, but I think we'll be okay. Um, So we are starting a brand new series today entitled Equipped, in which we are thinking... (coughs) Don't you start as well. Um, In which we are thinking about the many ways in which God equips us for the challenges and struggles that we face in life. And we're going to be basing this whole series in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, in which Paul talks about the armor of God. And each week we'll look at a particular item that makes up this armor, for example, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and so on. But today, I want to look at the dominant metaphor that kind of lies behind the whole passage and the concept. And it's this idea of us being in a battle against an enemy. And we're going to look at three things today, the enemy, the armor, and the victor. But before we do, I'd just like to pray, if that's all right. So uh, you may want to join me in closing your eyes, and I'll lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, our God and our victorious Savior. This morning, as we come to look at your word, I pray that you would prepare us and strengthen us. Where it challenges the ways we think about you, the world, or ourselves, I pray that we would respond well to those challenges and have our perspective shaped by you. Would you speak to us this morning? Would you give me the right words to say and the breath with which to say them? And would you equip us for life in your service? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great. Let's leap right in at the deep end. Verse 10 says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And I imagine if you're anything like me, some of you are like, whoa, hang on. (laughs) Big questions coming there right at the beginning of this passage. Because for many of us, we struggle with the idea of the devil. It's not something we've talked about a lot at Christchurch. I've certainly not had to preach on in any great depth before. Living in a Western secular place like London, many of us struggle with the idea of evil at all, let alone the idea of personified evil. In our modern secular worldview, many of us tend to think that things have a solely natural or scientific explanation, and we don't therefore need to go back to these outdated, primitive sort of views about uh, spiritual forces of evil. So what do we make of this passage? Well, in the mid-90s, the American literary critic Andrew Del Bonco wrote a book called The Death of Satan, 
how Americans have lost their sense of evil. And in it, he tracks how Americans have thought or written about evil across the centuries. And he argues that in American culture, and I think we're the same here, to be honest, um, we have largely done away with the idea of supernatural cosmic evil because we don't like the way it suggests moral absolutes of good and bad. And so often what we have done is get rid of that concept and replace it with ideas, uh, therapeutic terminology, language of dysfunction, pathology, and so on. So he says that when we look at the world, we assume that crime, illness, acts of cruelty all have natural causes. They're to do with bad sociological or psychological factors. And that being the case, we can understand them and work out how to fix them without needing to go back to these outdated spiritual concepts. There's plenty of truth in that, of course. And actually, psychology and science are insightful, good gifts to us. But what Del Bongo found was that this language didn't actually get to the heart of every situation. Because people were reluctant to call um, some instances of evil that they experienced, such as ethnic cleansing or serial killing, just matters to do with bad so sociological or psychological adjustment. So even though Del Bonco calls himself a liberal, secular um, atheist, I believe, at the time of writing, certainly, and the first line of his book says this, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. That is, we still see evil. It is very visible. We've not been able to get rid of evil. But by getting rid of spiritual concepts, we have thought that that would make us more equipped to deal with the problems we see. Actually, we found ourselves worse off as a result. And he quotes this example from Silence of the Lambs, which I did consider showing this morning, but it's a bit of a chilling way to start a Sunday morning, so I decided not to. Um, uh, if you've seen the film, it's from the moment where Clarice Starling, who's Jodie Foster's character, uh, goes to see Hannibal Lecter for the first time, and she hears all the things that he has done, this awful, awful serial killer, and she gets to see him, and she asks this question, what happened to make him so twisted? And Hannibal replies, and I won't do the voice, but you'll imagine it, no doubt, nothing happened to me officer starling i happened you can't reduce me to a set of influences you've given up good and evil for behaviorism officer starling nothing is ever anybody's fault look at me officer starling can you stand to say that i am evil and del Bonca quotes that scene and then he says this the modern west cannot answer the monster's question so when we read passages like we read today, everything within us, if you're anything like me, with our kind of secular Western uh, liberal upbringing and worldview, just wants to throw out the concepts entirely because we think they're from a past era. We don't need them anymore. Science will answer all the problems, answer all our questions. But Del Bonco says that when we give up spiritual concepts like good and evil and personified evil, we find ourselves less equipped to face the evil we see. We cannot answer the monster's question. So if jettisoning the idea of evil does not help us, what's the alternative? Or what does the Bible say is the answer to the monster's question? Well, the Bible is very clear about evil in many forms. Actually, we could say loads about it. There's loads to say. We're only going to skim the surface today. But in verse 12 of this passage, Paul uses a phrase called principalities and powers. 
And this phrase is one of many that's used through Scripture. Actually, it's used 10 times in the New Testament, if you can have the next slide up. And in many of those cases, well, actually, definitely the two in Luke and definitely Titus, these principalities and powers are not actually referring to spiritual things at all. They're referring to human systems and structures of government, which are intended to do good, but sometimes act in, uh, in favor of evil. They perpetuate injustice. So when the Bible speaks about principalities and powers, what it's saying is that evil can often be located in human systems and structures and ideologies which are designed for good but are sometimes used to perpetuate injustice. They're not spiritual forces, but they are powers. So part of the answer from the Bible to the monster's question is that there are human systems and structures and we as followers of Jesus need to stand up against those things. The systems and structures that perpetuate injustice and oppression. And there's plenty that the Bible says about that and there's loads that we could say about that. But it doesn't actually get to the heart of exactly what Paul is talking about or what the whole Bible teaches. Because if you were to look through the rest of these 10 verses, you'd find that leaving aside Luke and Titus, some of them are talking about things that don't seem like human structures at all, but maybe what we would call spiritual structures. And actually, if you were to note those verses and go through them, I'd encourage you to do it, you would find that many of them can't quite fall into either camp, human or spiritual. They seem to be a weird mixture of the two. You see, when the Bible is trying to get to the heart of the question of evil, it is not an either-or question. The Bible's answer is not either there are human systems and structures that are evil or there are spiritual forces that are evil. It's both and. There are often human systems and structures and ideologies that we see, but behind them there are forces of evil that animate them. And the biblical writers treat these spiritual forces not just as ideas or concepts, but as beings in some sort of sense, with some kind of personhood. So Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. A concept doesn't have schemes. A structure, an inanimate thing, doesn't have schemes. For Paul, he seems to think that the devil has some kind of mind, some kind of consciousness. And if you read from the Bible through literally cover to cover, Genesis 3, right through, you find that the Bible often talks not only about evil in an abstract sense, but sometimes in a personified sense. Genesis 3, you get the serpent, the tempter, and you get references to Satan or the enemy, the accuser, or to demons, for example. All of these are sort of, I, I struggle to use the word persons because they're kind of not, but they are agents, beings with some sort of personhood. The Bible seems to think that you cannot understand fully the problem of evil without having at least some idea that there may be personified evil. Jesus talked about his enemy, the devil, the Satan. He said that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus sees evil as taking on some kind of personified form. The problem is that the Bible doesn't actually tell us a lot about what this is like. So for many of us, we would have clear ideas of what the devil or demons might be like, but probably those ideas did not come from the Bible. Maybe if you were to imagine the devil or demons, sort of pictures like this might come to mind, uh, depicted in modern artwork, um, very sort of stylized ideas. Or in fact, worse still, maybe this is what comes to mind. Next slide. If you ever just wondered about an argument for the existence of evil, right there. 
And in fact, actually, Ed is on the slides, and he is a staunch Man U supporter. So thank you for actually showing that slide. You, you had power over me. Uh, next slide. Let's, let's get rid of that one. Um, but we can pray for you at the end if you are a Man U supporter. See, for many of us, we have fixed ideas of what the devil is like, but they're shaped actually by art, by literature, by music, by film, and so on. And what happened was that from the Middle Ages onwards, artists drew together imagery from all sorts of different religions across the world to put together this personified picture. And so they took the cloven feet from Pan, the god, and they took the horns of ancient Near Eastern cults, and they put them together to make the most terrifying picture they could. And so we've ended up with this kind of concept, this highly stylized image, which is now firmly fixed in our cultural consciousness. But of course, you and I look at that and we think, well, that's clearly fictitious and absurd. And so we sort of easily reject it because it's easy to reject a caricature like that, right? But the danger is in rejecting the caricature, we may find ourselves in danger of rejecting the reality. And then, as Del Bonco argues, we find ourselves not better equipped for life in the world. We lack the intellectual resources we need for facing the problem of evil. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis starts uh, his introduction like this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I think that is a really insightful quote. What he is saying is this. In our culture, we tend to go one way or the other. Either we have an excessive interest in the powers, the spiritual forces. We see them everywhere. We over-spiritualize things so that we actually no longer have any kind of appreciation for the human psychological or sociological effects. Or we go the other way and we get so blinded by our secular bias that we throw out the caricature and maybe in the process throw out the reality as well. Both are equal and opposite errors. And so my challenge to you at the beginning of this talk and beginning of the series is this. If these concepts seem strange to you, the idea of personified evil, and if you are tempted to reject them as kind of just outdated ideas from a primitive age, here are three things I would like you to consider, and I humbly suggest them to you, not as arguments, but as things for you to ponder for yourself. The first is this. If you are open to the idea of God, who is the embodiment of good, the spiritual embodiment of good, is it not inconsistent to throw out outright the possibility that there may be a spiritual embodiment of evil. First consideration. Secondly, if you are tempted to throw out the concept of the devil entirely, are you sure that the concept you are throwing out is the caricature, not the reality? Are you sure that you are throwing out the right version of the devil, not just the version of Western art? We must not mistake the caricature for the reality. And the third consideration is this. Would you at least consider that your view may actually be culturally quite narrow? You see, most people in the world, most places in the world, do not struggle with these ideas in the way that we Westerners do. It's really easy for us to think that people who think that there are good and bad forces at work in the world, spiritual forces, they are primitive in their thinking. They are simplistic in their thinking. It might actually be that our narrow view, which is not shared by the majority of culture and hasn't been for the majority of time, may actually be the simplistic view because we fail to recognize the true complexities of existence. 
Three things I would like you to consider as we go through this series. You see, for Paul, he thinks it is essential that we understand if we are to thrive in the Christian life, we need to know we have an enemy. And actually, he doesn't tell us loads about the enemy in this passage. I mean, his contemporaries did. You can read all sorts of Jewish literature and Greek literature where they speculated at length as to how the hierarchies of different powers worked. Paul doesn't go there. He just says, you've got an enemy. You need to know that. And that's enough for Paul. But Paul seems to think it is important that we understand, if we are to live rightly, that we are in a battle and we have an enemy. Who knows that the way you think about the world affects how you live in it? Little example, if you got to the end of the service and a BBC news alert popped up on your phone and it said, hey guys, <laughs> the BBC doesn't speak like that, but <laughs> I don't know why I said that, a really casual BBC news alert, hey guys, uh, just thought I'd let you know, uh, lion escaped from London Zoo, is running through the streets, last seen in Blackfriars. <laughs> uh, you would think twice before you left the building today, wouldn't you? Because your view of what is out there in the streets affects the way you live, right? You would look very carefully. You'd make sure the coast was clear. You'd make sure you were armed. You'd send Andy out first. Like, sacrifice him to the lion. We'll be all right. You see, the way that we think about the world affects how equipped we are to live safely in it. 1 Peter 5 says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If we know we have an enemy, we don't need to know everything about him or what he might look like if we depicted him in film. Paul doesn't go there at all, but he wants us to know, knowing you're in a battle, knowing you have, you have an enemy, affects the way you live. So what is his solution? Well, he doesn't say, so good luck. <laughs> or he doesn't say just stay inside and don't ever go anywhere. He says, actually, you have been given everything you need to stand against this enemy, to win this battle. He talks about the armor of God. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. <coughs> Excuse me. God gives us everything we need. He gives us the armor of God. Now, actually, it's not clear whether that phrase, the armor of God, refers to either the armor that God gives us or the armor that God himself wears. I actually think it's both, and I'll tell you why in a little while. But the point is, God gives us everything we need, but he doesn't put it on us. He gives it to us, and then it's our responsibility to put it on. God gives us absolutely everything we need, but it is up to us to clothe ourselves fully in the armor. And Paul uses this imagery of the armor of God drawn from the depiction of a Roman centurion and he lists all the bits that make it up. You've got the belt of truth. You've got the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And these sound like strange ethereal ideas. Actually, they come down to very simple, very practical things that we can do. And in this series, we will see that putting on the armor is not just a vague thing. It's to do with habits and practices and ways of thinking that equip us for life. This will be an immensely practical series. But notice at the very beginning, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. He knows that if we are to be equipped, we need to wear every piece of armor God gives us. Actually, that word for full armor, it's the Greek word panoplia, which means the full uh, equipment, both the stuff you wear, but also the weapons that a centurion would have. And Paul says, you need everything. Don't just think the sword is going to get you through. Like no centurion in their right mind will go out with 80% of their armor and go, I don't need a shield. I've got a breastplate. I'm sure I'll be fine. You put on the panoply. You put on the full armor if you are to prepare yourself for a fight. And Paul says that we need to do that. 
And there's a word in verse 12 which explains the nature of the battle, which I find really helpful for understanding why I need to wear every part of the armor. And it's this word, parley, which means to wrestle. And this was a particular word that the Ephesians would have understood because they held games in, in Ephesus, which I tried to pronounce in the south and stumbled over. Um, so I'm not going to do it now, but it will come up on the screen. Uh, I don't want to embarrass myself any further. But these games that they held every year, and one of the key games they would hold was the wrestling. And so these people would understand the parley, the wrestling, the wrestlers. They would know what was meant by this. They depicted it in their art and in their carving. This was a very close fought battle, a sporting thing. But it's kind of weird for Paul at this point to switch his analogy a little bit. He's geared us up for thinking that life is a battle, life is warfare. He's got this kind of military language. And then he switches to the language of sport, of wrestling. Why does he do that? They're quite different. I mean, in the first case, in the case of military warfare, you make sure you are wearing all of your panoplia. You are wearing a lot of armor. As you can see here, these guys, when wrestling, didn't wear much that left anything to the imagination. It's quite a different deal. So what is Paul saying? Why does he merge these two? Well, I think he wants us to know that the battle we are in will feel somewhat like a wrestling match, one-on-one. -on -one. It's not just distant. Enemies fire things generally from a distance. It's up close. It's personal. That is the nature of the fight. But, Paul says, the way to win it is to overdress. The way to win it is to approach the wrestling match as if you are approaching a battle and then you will have everything you need. Put on the full armor of God, he says. Dress for battle. For our wrestling, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces. And this picture of wrestling is sobering, but it's really important. Because it means that when we are fighting a battle, when life feels like a battle, it's not just vague attacks from a distance. It's more like you are fighting up close and personal. And when you are wrestling, you can see everything. I mean, literally too much according to that picture. You can see everything about your enemy. You can see where they are vulnerable and you can uh, e exploit those weaknesses accordingly. And Paul says that's what it's like. Life is a battle and we have an enemy who will exploit our weaknesses. Therefore, we need to put on every piece, 100% of the armor God has given us. Now, the struggles you and I face will be different because we are different. We have different weaknesses, susceptibilities. I no doubt we'll say more about this as we go through the series. I definitely will in week six. The way our enemy will exploit those will depend very much on how vulnerable we allow ourselves to be. Here's the thing, and I'll show you this to be the case in a moment. But here's the thing. If you are a follower of Jesus, the devil actually has no power over you. The only power he has is the power we allow him to have. And the way we allow him to have power is by leaving off the armor God has given us. We are only as weak as our armor is absent. And the devil is only as strong as our armor is absent. The way we give him power is by failing to put on the things God has given us. And so here at the beginning, Paul says, don't just put on 80%. Don't just think a sword or a shield is enough. Put on the full armor of God. Don't dare to try and live with 80% of the armor. Let me give you an example from my own life. Um, just before Christmas, I was having an awful day. And uh, some of you will know <clears throat> my family 
and I've been struggling with some particular challenges recently. And, and on this one particular day, it was really getting to me. And before I had left the house, just everything had gone wrong. It was just an awful day. And as I was leaving the house, walking to the tube, I was aware that my thoughts were just really negative. It was like all these challenges we were facing were just getting out of control. I don't know if you can identify with this. It was like all the what-ifs were just playing. And, and on that short walk to the tube, I was just thinking, well, what if that doesn't change? What if that leads to that? What if I can't defeat that? What if that means I have to do this or I can't do this? And, and in the space of 10 minutes, I had journeyed to the worst possible scenario of how things were definitely going to work out. And I suddenly realized I was just feeling low as I'm walking to work. I'm feeling sort of fearful, um, to be honest, and, and, and defeated. And that is not a great way to start your day. Like 8.30 in the morning, I give up already. Like that's how I felt. I thought I need to do something about this. So I got my headphones on, I put them on, I decided to listen to some music. And I chose to listen to coloring book by Chance the Rapper. Uh, now, I know that as I say that, half of you in the room aren't cool enough to know who Chance the Rapper is. <laughs> and the other half of you are thinking, Liam, you're fooling no one. You are not cool enough to know who Chance the Rapper is. <laughs> All right, more than half, <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, I am and I do, so deal with it. So I'm listening to this album and it's a great album, um, five stars, and I'm listening to it. And, and, and I think like one of my reasons for choosing this, just a lot of words, like, and I thought it can block out the thoughts in my head, lots of words. So I'm, I'm put the headphones on, I'm listening to it, I'm getting on the tube, and it just doesn't work. Like, my thoughts are still going, only now they have a soundtrack, which is not, not helpful. So my mind, I just couldn't focus on the music. I couldn't get the what-ifs out of my head. But suddenly, there was this moment where the only way I can describe it was, like, everything else cut out and the volume whacked up. It didn't literally happen, but that's what it felt like. And these lyrics stuck out to me. It said this, I get my word from the sermon, I do not talk to the serpent. That's the holistic discernment. And as soon as I heard that, I knew God is here right now and he is getting my attention. It was like something was just pulled off my eyes and I thought, that is exactly what I am doing. I have spent my morning since I got up to now listening to the words of the serpent, not the word of God. And I knew that I might feel like I had 80% of my armor in place, but there was this 20% hole, just gaping hole. And the enemy was like, I'm getting in there. I knew that I was allowing, it's like I'd sublet my mind to the cosmic thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And what had happened? He had stolen my joy. He had killed my hope. He was destroying my day. I knew what I needed to do was get the armor on. And so actually, I got to the next station. It's a short journey. I got off. And before I went to work, I just sat on a bench and I prayed. I waited for people to go away and I prayed quietly, to be clear. But I prayed. I reject this lie. And I put on the belt of truth in its place, choosing to believe God that you are good and that you have plans for my life. I put on the helmet of salvation, guarding my mind against negative thoughts that have no place and that would disempower me. I pick up the shield, choosing to see my situation through the lens of faith, not fear, and so on. And literally, praying through this passage changed it. It was like I was putting on armor to 100%. The thoughts dissipated. I approached that day entirely differently. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. I've had many experiences like that. Because this is not something you need to do once. Put on the armor and you're done. You're good for life. Actually, daily, I need to put on the armor of God. Because often I'll wake up and I feel like I got 50%, 60%, 80% tops. I need to get ready. I need to be prepared if I am to stand and thrive in that day. Three ways the devil is described in Scripture is as a tempter, a deceiver, and an accuser. So let me ask you this. Do any of these descriptions resonate with you? Are there habits that you can't seem to break? You just think they are stuck. They are not going anywhere where temptation seems too strong. 
Maybe there are habits that have been part of your life for so long, you have resigned yourself to thinking they are a fixed part of my identity and they can never change. That is a lie from the liar, from the deceiver. Maybe you have been living in a way that you know is not right deep down, but you've bought the lies. This is okay, I can justify that. And as a result, it has robbed you of the good, the best that God has for you. He is a thief. Of course he wants to steal the best God has for you. Maybe you have heard stories of other people experiencing freedom through steps and other ways, and you thought that's great for them. That could never happen to me. I'm too far gone. God couldn't love me. God couldn't have that victory in my life. I'm not good enough. Those are the words of the accuser. He wants to accuse you to rob you of the good that God has for you. The answer is to put on the full armor of God. Not just pick up a sword, not just pick up a shield, not just live with 70 or 80%. Put on the full armor, the panoply, everything God has given you so that you can win the victory. And as we go through this series, I think that there will be people who have that experience like I did on that tube. Maybe you've never thought like this before. We've not talked about this often. Maybe you've never thought that there may be spiritual forces, that life is a battle. But over the coming week, you will suddenly have moments where you'll be like, oh my word, I think I have been believing lies for years and I never even knew it. The answer is to put on the armor of God. As we go through this series, there may be particular things that challenge the way you think about the world. Go with it. Trust God's word and learn to put on the armor of God. This will be a very practical series, but you may do with particular help. We would love to help you. We are all in the same battle. It's not like we as preachers have got this sorted. Like we are all in the same battle, all in need of the same armor. And so if we can help you, we would love to. We have a prayer team at the end of every service who would very happily pray for specific challenges in your life. But actually, if you know you could do with a bit more help, we have a pastoral support team who would happily talk with you, listen to you, pray with you, encourage you. You can get in touch with them by emailing support at christchurchlondon.org. These guys would love to help you to face particular challenges or seasons that you are going through where you feel like the thief has got his claws in. If you need help, my encouragement to you is don't wait until you hit absolute rock bottom, real crisis point. Reach out early because we can help you to get the armor on. Often people wait until the absolute worst moment. No, there is so much we can do to prepare in advance. If you need help, there is no shame in reaching out. We are all in the same battle. We would love to help you. I won't say anything about steps because you've already heard about it this morning, except to say it's a great course that will really help. It's helped many, many people to find freedom. Do check it out, ChristChurchLondon.org. Find the steps page. We would love to help you if we can. As we learn to put on the armor daily, we will experience more and more strength to live the life to the full. And I honestly believe that everyone in this room can experience victory and freedom. You might think, well, maybe for others, not for me. No, I honestly think the victory is available to all of us. You know why? Because the battle is already won. Because victory does not rely on us and our own strength, but on the victor, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 1 John 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus does not leave a job half done. Almost every word of this passage on Ephesians 6 proclaims and celebrates the victory of Jesus. Let me show you. Paul says this, finally, 
And he doesn't mean, oh, by the way, just one other thing before I go, unrelated to everything else. No, at the end of this whole book, all about the victory of Jesus, he says, finally, let me apply this to you and your situation. He says, finally, be strong. Actually, the Greek, it's in a passive uh, verb there. He's not saying be strong, like be strong in yourself. Rather, be strengthened. Allow strength to be put into you from outside. And where does it come from? Be strong in the Lord. It's not that we muster up inner strength. We get strength from God and his mighty power. That phrase is used one other place in Ephesians. It's right at the beginning, Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul talks about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So get this. The reason I am so confident we can have victory is because God promises to strengthen us in him with the same power that rose Jesus out of a grave and brought him back to life. That is a lot of power. And God promises to put that in us. I mean, see what Paul says next. He says that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seated where? The heavenly realms. Above what? All rules and authorities, powers and dominions. So when Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly realms, where is Jesus in relation to those? He's above them. They are under his feet. Right now, Jesus is above all these other powers, victorious over all of them right now. And the same power that put him there lives in you. Therefore, says Paul, in the light of all of that, everything he said in the whole book, he says, put on the armor of God. I said earlier that that could either refer to the armor God gives or the armor God wears. I think it's actually both. Because you will see as we go through this series, Paul hasn't just made up this idea of this kind of warrior, this Roman centurion. He's drawn it straight from the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah 11 talks about Jesus, the Messiah, facing his biggest battle, the cross. And he describes him exactly like Paul does here, wearing the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Which means this, the armor we are given is none other than the armor God himself wears. The armor that we put on that protects us and strengthens us is Jesus and his gospel. We are in a battle, but it has already been won. And the attacks we experience are simply the death throes of an already defeated enemy. Listen to this, Colossians 2. God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Past tense, it has been done, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. Past tense, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, it's done. Past tense, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The good news of the gospel is that the battle is won and therefore the battle we find ourselves in is not a fair fight because we are fully equipped and fighting an enemy who has nothing. He has been disarmed and humiliated at the cross. So when the accuser reminds you of that weakness, that debt, that sin from your past or your present and says you will never be free of that, you can put on the helmet of salvation and say, no, I know that Jesus has already cancelled, paid for, nailed that thing to the cross. It is finished. When the deceiver tells you that God could not love or accept you, 
you can put on the belt of truth and say, no, I have seen the extent of God's love. He gave his son for me. When the enemy tries to convince you that he is powerful and you are worthless, you have no value, you have no power, you have no strength, you can say, no, I pick up the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, and I fight you who not only doesn't have this, you don't have anything. You don't have anything to fight back with. I pick up the sword of the spirit and I fight against that lie. When the deceiver tells you you are worthless or you are powerless and attacks your identity, you can take up the shield of faith and say, no, I choose to look at this situation through faith. I know you have been humiliated and I am so precious in the sight of my God. Jesus has disarmed you and the power that put him above you is in me. Victory is ours, not because of strength we have in here, but because we have a God who fights for us. So I don't know what specific challenges you are facing today, but I know that victory is available, not because of you, but because Jesus is enough and he has given us everything we need. So today, would you dare to believe that the thief who has come to steal, kill and destroy has been disarmed? And that God's power lives in you and equips you to live life differently. It may well be that already, beginning of the series, you're like, I know there is that area of my life where I need his power because I am feeling weak. We would love to pray with you today. And we'll have a prayer team who will happily pray with you specifically. I'm going to pray generally in just a moment as well. It may be that you're here as someone who's exploring faith and you're like, I haven't got my head around the God thing yet, let alone the devil. I understand that. And if this has raised big questions for you, what it kind of should, I'm sort of not apologizing for that, but we would love to help you explore those questions. Do come and speak to me or a leader here or someone you know. Ask them about this. But if you know, actually, I've spent years of my life having things robbed from me, missing out on the life to the full that Jesus offers, and I want to know that, then today we can pray with you. You can know Jesus. You can know the life and the freedom he offers. We would love to do that. Maybe the band would like to come up. We're going to sing a song that celebrates Jesus' victory. It's past tense, but it's also carrying on now. He has fought for us. He has disarmed the powers, but he continues to fight for us. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing this song. And it may well be that if you know there are areas of my life right now where I am lacking armor, where I am experiencing weakness and vulnerability, you may want to picture that in your mind and sing this song over that area of your life as a way of having his strength put into you. Why don't we stand? I would love to pray for us. You may find it helpful just to close your eyes, to focus Lord Jesus, our Savior and our victorious King, thank you that you came to destroy the works of the evil one. I pray that his works would be completely destroyed in our lives, that not one trace would remain. Where the thief intends to steal, kill, and destroy, would you instead give life to the full? I pray for those who have had years of their life stolen by addiction or illness or many schemes of the evil one. Would you restore them today? I pray for those for whom the thief has killed dreams and passions and promises from God. Would you restore them? May they no longer listen to the lies of the deceiver, but instead be strengthened by the word of God. 
I pray for those for whom the thief has destroyed a sense of well-being, of being an image bearer, dearly loved by God. I pray that you would restore a sense of self-esteem today, that we would know we are wonderfully made, dearly loved, children of God, fashioned in the image of our Creator. I pray that every one of us would be strengthened in you in the might of your power. Would we put on every part of your armor and may the devil flee. And may the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him above every other would-be ruler. May that resurrection power dwell in the hearts of everyone in this room in your mighty, powerful name. Amen. Let's worship. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.